From WHQR Public Media, this is The Newsroom. I'm Ben Schockman. Thanks for joining us. Later on today's show, we'll be joined by WHQR's Rachel Keith for a deep dive into the opioid crisis and Port City Daily's Alexandria Sands-Williams to talk about her recent reporting on the county's mask mandate debate. But first, a look ahead at the challenges facing New Hanover County with our first guest, Chairwoman Julia Olson-Bozeman. Julia, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Ben. So I wanted to talk about what's in store for the year ahead for the county. Well, I think that we're all very excited about uh, an affordable housing plan that we've been developing that will not include a bond. So there's absolutely no way that I'm going to support a bond to raise people's taxes when we have um, just buckets of money in this county, I think, that we can use for that. So I'm, I'm excited to see that I think that we will be partnering with the foundation at some point later this year and really moving forward with uh, affordable housing. That's the Community Foundation, right? The Community Foundation. Have you had a chance to talk to uh, Mr. Buster, their new CEO? I have not met Mr. Buster yet. I've talked to, um, of course, Spence and Hannah, but I have not had the pleasure. I look forward to meeting them, and I'm sure he's going to be just the catalyst that they need. Uh, Yeah, he seems like he is ready to hit the ground running. Absolutely. Uh, So between, you know, what the foundation can turn out, and then allegedly there will be turning out grants by the end of this calendar year, uh, between that and you know, hundreds of millions of dollars that the county has, um, ARP funds, you feel like there's a way to actually start moving the ball. Absolutely. I know there is. We've commissioners been talking amongst ourselves and staff's been working on a plan to absolutely come forward with affordable housing. We, we definitely have a plan to do that. You know, there's, we have all types of exciting things that are going to be coming down the pipe that we can't talk about. Um, economic development, you know, we've got a huge economic development project that will be announced in this region in a couple of months. It's just going to be game-changing. Uh, I also serve on the airport authority, and we just announced $125 million projects going out there, and that is just the beginning. My understanding is the $100 million project at the airport's already been leased, and they're going to be picking up another spot out there, and there's just all types of economic development projects coming up. And the county actually is redoing, not redoing, but updating the Garner Report, right? Yes, that is correct. And one of, one of the things that always struck me about that, I believe that was back in 2014, it's been a minute. It's been a minute. Is, I think the word was balkanized, uh, which is not a word we throw around in conversation that often, but the, the report found that the economic development efforts in our region were sort of siloed and not talking to each other. Do you feel like that's gotten better? I absolutely know it's gotten better. I think one of my goals as chair and one of the reasons I wanted to be on the airport authority is so that we could start connecting the dots and having our partners talk to each other. Um, before, I don't, there was not the relationship with the airport authority and our economic development partners, um, but now there is. And they're all working together. You know, the, when we were doing the new airport director and interviewing those potential candidates, the chamber took a big role in that and uh, taking candidates around town and introducing them to the community. So I, I the Wilmington Industrial Development has helped the airport bring this $100 million project out. So it is really good to see everyone talking to each other. And I I insist on it as long as I'm a chair and a commissioner that I'm going to be pushing to make sure people are talking to each other because you're right. It has been like silos. It feels like forever, not only with economic development, but let's look at the city and the county. You know, there's we finally are working together, the mayor and I and the council members and the commissioners, we all have a really good relationship, and we've kind of decided to erase the lines. You know, we're going to 
do affordable housing if it's in the county, in the city, economic development, if it's right across the line, it's just as important to the city. Uh, and so it's exciting to see us actually have partnerships and relationships with, with the other boards instead of us just sitting in our separate rooms, pointing fingers at each other. Right, yeah, inspiring people uh, to have consolidation talks about merging the city yes. and the county, which yes. is always a fun topic. Yes. Um, speaking of you know things the city and the county didn't always see eye to eye on, uh, and sort of the partner of the affordable housing thing is public transportation. Mm-hmm. Uh, you were not shy about pointing out basically that WAVE wasn't working. No, I was not shy about it at all. I, yes. Do you? What's the prognosis now? Is it better? Yes. Well, it's definitely better. I think that our the new director uh, is certainly an improvement and is not going to just spend reserves and, and not tell the county. I mean, it was pretty um, eye-opening or, I don't know, ballsy of them to come to us and ask us for money after they'd spent all the reserves that we had given them and they've never even told us. And so with this, we, and they, the board said they didn't regret it. It's like, you can't run a, that's just not. I remember, I remember they, they I, were sort of an ultimatum, like we will be shutting down if we don't get this money. It was uh, you know, an interesting time, and we were able to. You know, we we had to the we had to take the funding away in order to get the city to the table. And when we did get the city to the table, we said, you know, we're committed. I will, as a commissioner, I'm committed to doing whatever I have to do for Wave. But there's no way that I'll agree to give any money with that current leadership and board. And the rest of the commission feels the same way. So. The majority of the commission feels the same way. I said there's not all the commissioners felt that way, but there's no way that I was going to do that. So we're working together, the staff, you know, the county and the st- city staff is actually running wave now, and they're, they're the board, and, and we're hoping to find the funding source to see what we can do to help, to help. Because yeah. even if there's one person on the bus, that one person does need a ride, and we cannot forget that. I do occasionally take the bus, so I appreciate that. Um, <laughs> is, a, is a sales tax, is that still, is that sort of as much as... Um, a toxic item to you as the housing bond, or is that more plausible? It's it's more plausible, but I'm not much of a tax person, especially raising taxes when we have $350 million just sitting over there. I, I'm just not a big fan of that. You know, I, I think you also are going to see with the school violence prevention that we had been working on. Uh, all the commissioners have met with staff, and uh, I think we'll see something come out later this month that um, – we're going to see an agreement with at least four of the commissioners, and we're going to open the black box back up. You're talking about this, these are the efforts to deal with community violence, so-called. Community violence, and then open the black box of the $350 million. Sure. And we certainly are. There's definitely an appetite, I think, with at least four of the commissioners that we want to reduce the tax rate next year. And with $300 million in a revenue stabilization fund, there's no reason for us not to do it. So we're going to We've been talking amongst ourselves. You know, it's, it's a lot of money. Like, if we if we don't spend it on school violence, this prevention, what what are we going to spend it on? Are we just going to let it sit in the bank for three hundred fifty million dollars for thirty years? I don't know. That that's going to actually benefit the community. And, it, and Commissioner Apple has said that we need to get the money back in the community. So we're gonna we're gonna start figuring out what to do. You, I mean, the county certainly wouldn't be the first government body to sort of hoard its cash reserves like Smaug on a giant pile of gold coins. Well, we have our fund balance for that. You know, we have 21, uh, 21% in our fund balance. is very healthy. That's what it's there for. We have great bond rating. You know, we always have the ability to borrow money, but we're in a pretty 
unique situation as a county to have $350 million just up here for us and that there's no tax. No, we didn't raise taxes. There's so we're it's in a unique, it's a very unique situation. And the commissioners are finally starting to get our head around it that we need to start spending this money. Can I ask what you think, you know, sort of the main issues are when we talk about community violence? Because this is one of the most nebulous terms we've had thrown around. And I, I've, I've spoken with Ben David and, and Judge Jay Corpening, and everyone gives me a, a kind of a different definition of what community violence is which I think confuses some people when we're talking about how are you going to tackle it. Well, community violence to me is there's guns in the street. You know, there's kids walking around and adults. You know, this is not just with guns. You know, we I don't think there's probably much doubt that there's a kid at a school somewhere in New Hanover County with a gun. We've got to stop this on the streets before it gets into the school. So, you know, we're going to implement programs as Judge Corpening had asked the city to do the something like the Durham Bull Prevention um, years ago and look at where we are now. So we've got to do something bold. Those They have mediators or violence interrupters to go into the actual community and try and stop it before it gets out on the streets and into our schools. So it's like a, they're disruptors, as some of it. Um, a lot of it, it will be improvements, hardscape improvements at the schools. Uh, having actually cameras that actually work and like that aren't crooked. You know, a lot of them are crooked and there's nobody watching them. So the community violence, you know, it's not it's not just the school violence because it's not just somebody getting the problem didn't happen in the schools. The problem happened in the community. So we've got to figure out how we're going to deal with the violence in the community to stop it from going in our schools. Some of the things we've heard, and this is from my conversation with uh, Ben and Jay, was that, you know, a lot of this has to do with uh, systemic poverty, you know, the result of years of discrimination, segregation, redlining, the whole nasty history of racial politics in the South. Um, how, do you, how, do, how do you get at that? I mean, if that's what's generating some of the crime. I think we're going to have to get to the kids earlier. We've got to figure out how to get to them to stop the cycle, give them more alternatives. You know, I, I firmly believe, and I don't know why we don't do this with our school system, is having the schools open later, you know, not with our teachers, not trying to overburden the teachers that we have or the staff to have additional staff and additional programs so that these kids have somewhere to be go instead of just leaving school, going out in the streets and doing God knows what. I mean, they're, you know, I've seen it, you know, when I did criminal defense for a number of years, so you can actually see a record how they progress. You know, it's going to start off with a small charge like marijuana and then goes up to heroin at some point. So you can just see how the, the poverty just continues and that how we've got to get more people in there. I think we need to have get more adults in the schools, not just teachers and teacher's assistant, but actually community members who can connect with these kids, you know, just say, hey, what's, hey, how you doing? Hey, how's it going? You know, just so they have other avenues because there's so many children in the schools that just don't have the parental supervision that they need. And the school is their safe place. And that is where they go to learn and to eat and everything else. So that we're just going to have to do better as adults in a society to try and get to these kids sooner. And that kind of, I mean, honestly, that, that does track with what I've heard from you know, folks who uh, are running the um, the Durham program, the Bull City United. Um, I The general, and I don't want to sound cynical, but it, it seems like at a certain age, I don't want to say it's too late, but it's much more difficult. It, it, it is too, uh, it is much more difficult or too late. You know, you've got to get them, you've got to stop them early before they start getting into the cycle and getting into gangs. And just, I think that a lot of our youth, especially coming from poverty, feel like this is their only solution. It's their only 
this is their only choice because it's all they know. That's all they've seen. And, you know, we've got to stop it. I mean, I, I represent I mean, when I first started practicing law, I remember representing someone in DSS court who had their child taken away. And they were like, really, I have to get a job? And they were just shocked They're, and amazed they were going to be required to work. I've had gang members tell me the same thing that they, um, you know, oh, I would love a, a six figure job in fintech, but who's going to hire me? Like, this is this is the job. So uh, you mentioned teachers and not overburdening them. Um, we've been tracking the issues at the New Hanover County Schools District, which is separate from the county, but has been looking to the county maybe for some money for increasing TAs, um, staff support, bus drivers, the whole basically the whole payroll. Uh, and they would like the county's help to do that. But they are also sitting on a significant amount of money. I believe at last check, I believe it was like $85 million in federal funds. How do you think about that? There has certainly been a lot of discussion between some of the commissioners and the school board and staff with concerns over the money that they have. Um, I don't have any desire to go through the school's budget line by line, nor will I. I can say as a commissioner that I absolutely support giving the TAs the money that they deserve. We're lucky to have the teachers that we have now. I think if we would not have increased the supplement, we would be facing a lot of the same problems that you see across the nation. Uh, so that we're just going to have to keep doing more I, I, and pay our TAs more. And if the county commissioners have to do that, I know Commissioner Rabenbark and I were talking about it yesterday, that you know he was on the Board of Education. That's something we both believe in, this supporting education. So I I think that there's at least two of us that probably want to look for a way to help the school board with that. I mean, come on, we have $300 million sitting over there. Let, let's, let's, let's help our citizens come up with a plan. The, there were some really kind of stark numbers at the end of last year on the opioid epidemic. I believe it was the most lethal year for opioid overdoses on record since they've been tracking these things. Is this something that's on the county commissioner's radar Yes. I mean, it is. I, well, we have the 200-bed facility. We're going to the healing place, and that's the only one in the state. It could be the only one in the country. I mean, it's 100 beds for men, 100 beds for women, and it's free at no cost. And I think you can stay up there, stay there for, I believe, up to a year. It's peer-based, and we're going to do everything we can to help people because it's – I can remember being at um, Food Line a couple of years ago, and this is when they were just doing the – so when I was first elected, and they were only going to do it for the men, under bed for men, and a woman coming up to me and asking me, I need help, I have an alcohol problem, my husband's abusive, I have to sit over here at the McDonald's to get away from him, and I don't have anywhere to go, and I need not have any help. There's nowhere for me to go. And here are people who, you know, they get clean and sober. The most number one thing is willingness, and you have people willing and wanting to get sober and nowhere to go. So I'm really grateful for the board before me who had the vision and wisdom to start this. And I'm even happier that the board expanded it, include women too, and that, you know, we're going to help our citizens. So one, one question we had from, from our reporting on this was, we've talked to a lot of people who work in the you know, field of addiction, uh, addiction management, addiction treatment, um, who, all, who basically uniformly told us that medically assisted treatment was the way to go. Um, Everyone from, you know, people uh, at Coastal Horizons, people at Duke, people at, at UNC. Um, but that's not the treatment that's being provided at the we help ha- us. Well, we have medical-assisted treatment here. If that's what people want, then they're welcome. That's the 
avenue that is best for their recovery, then they're welcome to go to Coastal Horizons for medical assistance. We have that in New Hanover County. What we don't have is a peer-based treatment facility, and this is what we are going to have. But we have both. If We have both here. All right. I think that's everything I wanted to get to. I will, for the sake of the people who email me about this all the time, ask about Project Grace real quick. Yes. Uh, only because I know the county is getting ready at some point this year to submit to the LGC sort of the, the financials of this to see if they approve it. Doomsday scenario, LGC says no. Is there a plan B? I would think if the LGC says no, I would guess that we would probably buy the work product and have someone else build it. Fair enough. Well, that's all I had. Anything else? You ask me about the election? Well, I'm glad you mentioned it. <laughs> I was about to say, uh, I can't let you out here without asking uh, if you'll be running for office again. Absolutely. And will you be running as a Democrat? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> okay. I'm running as a Democrat. We get quite a few calls about that. I, I believe I'd have to switch my parties a long time ago. I haven't even considered I don't changing parties. I don't know. I, I get it. This is the thing locally with the county commission, which I'm grateful for. It's, it's not Raleigh. When we when I was a senator in Raleigh, it was very partisan and you it was very party line. There, there was much more. When I was in the Senate, they're giving me half a million dollars to run. So you, you have a little bit more loyalty or you feel like you have to vote certain ways, sometimes even when you don't want to. But locally, that just doesn't happen. Not for me as a Democrat. I don't. I've never called the party or asked anyone at the party how I should vote, and I never will. Um, I vote on the issues. You know, yes, sometimes I vote with Democrats, sometimes I vote for Republicans, some, with Republicans, and sometimes we all vote together. You know, I don't, I have not had a commissioner say anything about party to me if, with any of the issues. We never discuss it. I don't, other people like to, trying to make this partisan it's just not it's just we actually have five people who are just trying to work together for the betterment of the community we disagree sometimes but most of the time we were able to find our common ground and move forward together so let me ask then um what is the temperature like on the board of commissions because it's it's been tense in the past it actually seemed a little less tense last week when you when you guys were talking about uh lowering taxes it is a lot less tense every June, when we do the budget, and every December, when we do the chairmanship, it just gets tense. I'm sure that every board commission board across the state is probably like that. But yeah, it gets a little tense those two times a year. I think I'm hoping this budget year is going to go a little smoother since I think we'll mostly be on the same page of reducing taxes and still investing in education. I, th- I think probably the, mo- the most exciting thing about this next year is the economic development projects that you're going to here coming and the county's going to we're trying to take a a, a role and really trying to start um, an industrial park so we're hoping to have that announced in a couple couple of months too well we will stay tuned for that absolutely and hopefully you know eventually we'll make it out of this godforsaken pandemic <laughs> <laughs> look I've, i i know you have no control over that i wish i did i would wave my magic wand make it go away but you know i think that we're getting closer to it i think we're getting closer to the end and i think this year we're going to see us get a grip on it you know i'm not i'm i'm planning to go to europe this summer i'm well, that's g- my plan and i'm sticking to it all right well godspeed uh julia olson bozeman thank you so much for coming by thank you for having me ben all right well we need to take a quick break but when we come back we'll unpack the latest on the opioid crisis with our own rachel keith You're listening to The Newsroom. Stay with us.
Welcome back to the newsroom. I'm Ben Schachman. With me now, WHQR's own Rachel Keith, who has been reporting on the opioid crisis. More people died from opioid overdoses in 2021 than in any other year on record. Rachel's been reporting on how that crisis has hit the Wilmington area and how officials are trying to deal with it. Rachel, thanks for being with us. Thank you. So in your recent reporting, you've been looking at the opioid epidemic here in the Cape Fear region. Walk us through a little bit about what you've been looking at so far. So I did three stories. The first one was what's going on with the crisis here locally, because we know that national statistics, the overdose rates are extremely high. They're the highest that they've ever been. So I walked through how we're tackling this crisis here locally. I spoke with Kenny House, the VP of Clinical Services at Coastal Horizons. I spoke with uh, a UNCW professor, assistant professor about how she is training future nurse practitioners how to use medically assisted therapies, which I'll talk about momentarily. And I also got the county's point of view on how they're tackling the crisis. The second part was looking into New Hanover County's new $24 million residential facility. They'll have 100 beds for men, 100 beds for women. And that's those who are battling uh, addiction or dependencies with drugs and alcohol. So I walk through with the um, managers of the healing place what it will look like. Uh, so that was the second part of that series. And uh, so there's there's two things that came out of that reporting. One is um, there have been some delays. I mean, we're dealing with all kinds of supply chain issues. So that was part of it. But then you got into, you know, this kind of medical philosophical debate about how we treat opioid use disorder. Yes, that was the third part of the series. And the Healing Place of New Hanover County, which is modeled on the Healing Place of Kentucky, it's a non-medical detoxification facility. So they will not be offering Suboxone, which is buprenorphine and naloxone or Subutex, they will not be offering any type of medically assisted therapies to those who might need it. And then I talked to other providers out in the community, namely Coastal Horizons and Dr. Amanda Kulproch, who teaches nurse practitioners how to dispense these medications at UNCW. You know, what are the merits of this medication and what does it mean if they don't have access to it? Give us kind of both sides of this debate here. So the healing place operators and along with the county, they say that medically assisted therapies don't fix the underlying issue of addiction or dependency. So they're saying it's one part that they're not really interested in also because it can be diverted. That means that it can be sold on the streets, that they can manipulate the dosing somehow to get a high from this. But then when I talk to medical experts, they watch this very closely. So that does not happen. They have reporting that they have to do if they do dispense the medications. Um, the Healing Place also said in Kentucky that they haven't had good uh, results with medically assisted therapies. But on the other hand, when I talk to medical professionals and those at Coastal Horizons, they say it is a necessary part of some people's treatment and it should be provided. Uh, Professor uh, Cole Proach told you, you know, basically, why aren't, why aren't we providing this? Um, let's hear what she had to say about that. If it's not available, then it certainly is not going to help. So I understand where they're coming from, 
and respectfully disagree to some point. But again, if there are some people out there that can help, why are we not providing it to them? And to counter that, we have Marla Highball. She's the Director of Development and Communications for The Healing Place. Let's hear what she had to say. We know that not every option works for every person. So we always want to make sure that there's options and we want to be an option. We want to make sure a non-medical, a peer-driven model is an option because we've seen it make a difference to people who walk through the doors. And I've talked to about a dozen people for this series of stories that I've done, and I'm about to do more reporting on it. And everyone says that recovery looks different for everyone. So everyone's on the same page about that. Yeah, I mean, that was that was one takeaway is that, you know, there. I don't want to gloss over the fact that there is a debate here and that not everyone agrees. But I think, you know, the fact that at least there are options for people, at least it's being taken seriously. That's that that can't be a bad thing. Right. Um, okay. So you also talked to people who are, you know, seeing this on the front lines, uh, including in, in hospitals and private practice. Tell me a little bit about that. Yes. Dr. Karen Isaacs, she is a family doctor at New Hanover Regional Medical Center. She works at Coastal Family Medicine, and she's also part of the core faculty for the Family Medicine Residency Program at the hospital. And she does dispense this medication. And here's uh, a reason why she prescribes, excuse me, she doesn't dispense, but why she prescribes the medication. A lot of times patients that are using unprescribed opioids or heroin or or other medications that drive their opioid use disorder, they don't want to say it to the staff. They won't bring it up. They'll sometimes withhold that information, which complicates their hospital stay. Sometimes they're there for one thing, and while they're in the hospital, they end up having withdrawal symptoms that complicate their stay. And and if, if as healthcare staff, we can really figure out how to ask that question in a compassionate way, and help support their opioid use disorder and a therapeutic relationship while they're in the hospital. It only helps. So again, she and other staff see people that come in for pneumonia. They come in for complications of hepatitis B or C or HIV, and they she can see them going with through withdrawal, and she has an answer to help them with that so they can stay and get their care. Yeah, I mean, f- from reading through your reporting and, and sort of reflecting back on my own reporting over the years, this seems to be one of the, the main issues is that um, withdrawal. It, yes. It, it, it's people who use opioids for a long period of time end up locked in this cycle where, you know, recovering addicts and, and people who have dealt with opioid use disorder have described to me that it's no longer pleasurable. Um, it's now just about avoiding the painful effects of withdrawal. And that's, you know, one of the trade-offs with medic- medically assisted treatment is that you're going to be on an opioid for a long period of time. Some people titrate off. Some people are going to be on it for a long period of time. But sort of the threat of withdrawal is kind of always around the corner. You know, if you lost your insurance or if you moved to a new area and had to get treatment again or, or something else happens, whereas, you know, with um, abstinence-based programs, you are, you know, what some people call clean. You know, so it's it, the drug is out of your system. Um, so on the one hand, you know, uh, treatments like methadone and, and more commonly now Suboxone and Subutex, uh, most medical professionals told you and they've told me this is the gold standard. Like this really works in terms of getting people off of street drugs, off of abusing heroin uh, and away from the risk of, you know, a fentanyl overdose. But on the other hand, you know, it's, it's not out of your system. 
Yes, and they all said that Suboxone, that doesn't really give you the euphoric effects because it has that naloxone in it, part of the medication regimen. So it keeps people safe. And for medical professionals, it's really about harm reduction. It's about people not overdosing and dying. Yeah, and I, I think that has been, I mean, I don't want to go down this wormhole, but this is definitely something we've heard. There are people who kind of morally object to harm reduction strategies, whether that's needle exchange or, you know, methadone clinics or, you know, more again, more recently, uh, Suboxone. There, there are some, I don't know, some people on the political spectrum who object to the idea of especially using public money to what they see as, you know, facilitating a habit. But the science is that this keeps people from dying. And the state is investing in these therapies as well, and we'll get to that in a moment. But the state, with the opioid settlement money, one of the the second endorsement that they're giving is for medically-assisted therapies to be available. Yeah. I I do want to move on um, and talk about TIES. This is uh, a New Hanover County nonprofit program that really really has like a laser focus on pregnant and, and postpartum women dealing with opioid use disorder and, you know, I mean, sort of anecdotally, I think we've all heard that drug abuse and substance abuse rips apart families. So they're really looking at trying to keep, you know, that mother-child unit together. Yes. And Dr. Johnstone, William Johnstone, who is the founder of the program, and he's a medical doctor. He also is the president of president of Tides. So let's hear what he had to say about their success in the program. We have decreased the infants stay in the hospital after being born to a mom with uh, opioid use disorder from nine days down to six days. And the length of stay in the NICU has been reduced from four to three days, just by virtue of the fact that these women are now on buprenorphine instead of illicit drugs. Over 94% of our moms maintain some form of custody of their children, which means that before the Tides was there, that number was in the single digits, uh, if not zero. And uh, I just want to make a note, you can hear Dr. Johnstone's dog in the background here. We're in the we're still in a COVID pandemic. We're still doing Zoom meetings. So sometimes people interview with us from home. Yes, that's right. And we forgive them. We forgive them. <laughs> and their dogs are cute. Yes. So tell me a little bit more about this program. Yeah, so it's it's been uh, in operation since 2018. Uh, Dr. Johnstone says, yes. Uh, most all of the women, it's about 33 women that they serve a year. They also have about eight women that they house. And yes, most of them all are on medically assisted therapies. He says that's where the research shows is the best outcomes for these women. Uh, he doesn't say that they have to be on it, but about 99% are. And he also had an evolution about how he viewed medically assisted therapies And he wants us to have more compassion and get rid of that bias and stigma that Dr. Isaacs was talking about earlier when they come into the hospital, that they're in withdrawal and they want them to be honest with them. So let's hear about Dr. Johnstone and his point of view about how we should view view those who have dependencies. If we can just peel back the onion on these folks that are family members of ours that are dealing with addiction, yeah, we get frustrated with them because of the, the lies and the stealing and the legal issues that uh, come along with it. But if you just peel back those onion layers, there's still a soul. There's still a human being buried deep in that troubled body and that troubled mind. I think this is one of the most important things that you've gotten to with your reporting is that 
even the language around reporting on this, um, and I've, I've been guilty of this in the past, talking about addicts instead of people with addiction issues. The terminology is always changing, but the increased emphasis on people-centered language is a symptom of the fact that for so long there's been so much stigma. There's been so much shame around what is essentially a, a disease, a, you know, a brain chemistry issue or a mental health issue, however you want to look at it. These are human beings uh, who have a problem with a particular drug. It's not in the entirety of who they are. And I think you know, the more you talk to people who work in this space, the more you get a sense of that. And I hope the public gets a sense of that. Yeah. And they want the stigma to go away as well when they need medications like Suboxone or Buprenorphine or Subutex, that they might need this because their brain is what the medical profession has said is that their brain is chemically altered and that they might need support. Not all of them are successful on these medications, but it does help. And Dr. John Stone, we interviewed on Coastline a couple years ago, uh, Krista Turner, who shared her dependency story with us. And if you go back and listen to that conversation, it's very gut-wrenching. She, she really goes into what happened to her. And she met Dr. John Stone at the hospital when she had endocarditis because of her dependency on opioids. But Krista, she was six months into her sobriety. Now she's three years sober. And let's hear about uh, how she's doing. She's married. She's got custody of the infant that we delivered, as well as her 14-year-old son that she lost years ago. She's got two jobs. She just won a car with one of her jobs. She is actually on our board. I mean, it, that's an amazing story. It's an amazing story, and I was so happy to check in on her, and she's doing so great. And actually, Brian Mann, an NPR reporter, said that there's a medical uh, study out from Harvard saying that over time, long term, if they can keep people in treatment, 75% recover. Over, they recover from their dependency. And yes, it's a long road where they have relapses, um, but ultimately people get better. I think you told me the average is five relapses. Yes, average uh, is five. Which yeah. can probably seem hopeless at a certain point, but I, I got to say that that 75% number is like a very encouraging metric in, in a field of data that looks really depressing sometimes. That's right. Um, and, and just a note, by the way, we'll have a link to that, that coastline on the show page. Um, and kind of a trigger warning, it is intense. It is intense because she details her history of abuse, uh, sexual abuse, um, and also her abuse of, of opioids. And she's very honest and she's very open. And it's it's very gut-wrenching, like yeah. I said. Yeah, I mean, it may not be appropriate for some young listeners, but it's it's worth listening to because it's, it's really raw and honest. Yes. Um, all right, so I want to move on. A another piece of this puzzle is the sort of intersection of the court system and the opioid epidemic. And you talked to Judge Jay Corpening, uh, and you, you covered a lot of ground. So fill me in on what's going on here. Yes, I did. I was very curious because Tafana Bradley, she is the assistant county manager, and she's the staff liaison for the Healing Place. And she said that it could be part of someone's court order to get treatment, uh, and they could be sending them to the Healing Place. And Judge Corpening has had ideas about medically assisted therapies. He says, I'm a fan of whatever works, but for opioid use disorder, let's hear. I believe that, that for opioid use disorder, particularly that medication assisted therapy is the best way to go. The data shows that, but it doesn't work for some people. 
So here we are again, that the science is on the side of medically assisted therapy, but again, that does not work for everyone. And I learned through his advising through the family court system that they really do give people an option about what they want. Do they want non-medical? Do they want medical? And they try to work with that person. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, early in the show, we heard uh, County Chair Julia Ozen Bozeman talk about this, where Coastal Horizons does provide medically assisted treatment yes, to people. Yes, they do. Uh, you know, some of the concern has been that the county's marquee big statement facility piece does not offer this. Um, and that does concern some people. But it's it's we want to be absolutely clear that that is an option for people. MAT is an option for people in New Hanover County. Yes. At Coastal Horizons. And I talked with Kenny House and he says that they can help the uninsured or and the underinsured. So that that should not be a barrier. But again, it's an outpatient They're, They don't have residential services there. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing, and I, I won't go, again, I won't go too far down this wormhole either, but there is a world of, uh, I guess what I, I, I'm tempted to call luxury uh, rehab and treatment. Yeah. Uh, this is like that passages Malibu stuff. This is not what we're talking about. We're talking about, you know, you still have to keep your life together. It's a lot of hard work. Uh, it can be really challenging. That's right. All right, so moving on. Corpening gave you, I mean, he sees a lot of court cases, so he's seeing, you know, about as raw as it gets, and he gave you some insight into What's going on with the opioid epidemic? Yes, and Dr. Johnstone confirmed this and other medical professionals confirmed this, that why we're seeing the spikes in overdose deaths, it's because of fentanyl and it's also because of the isolating nature of the pandemic. Let's hear. Fentanyl's a stone cold killer. Holy cow. I was just trying to think back over the last maybe six months. I think every person that I've seen who overdosed and then was brought back with Narcan or every single person that overdosed and died leaving to their child coming into care overdosed because of fentanyl. It may not have just been fentanyl that they used, but fentanyl was the lethality factor. And I think that the isolation factor for folks who are in recovery is so tough. If you have not been tracking the opioid crisis and you've never heard of fentanyl, I'd be really surprised. But for those who don't know, this is a synthetic opioid. It's dozens of times more powerful than prescription you know, hydrocodone or street heroin. Uh, it, it's used for extreme pain in cancer patients or anesthetizing you know, even larger animals. It's really powerful stuff. It's really dangerous. Uh, I actually remember a story back in 2018, I think it was, where the New Hanover County Sheriff's Office seized, you know, about two and a half pounds of fentanyl. So, you know, like a, a reasonably small brick of drugs, but it was enough fentanyl to kill everyone in New Hanover County, like every man, woman, and child in the county twice. So, I mean, it's, it's just staggeringly dangerous stuff. Yeah. It's wild. And, and people are chasing that high. I mean, it's, and, and it's, and it brings you to the brink of death. Yeah, you know, I, we in a recent interview I did with um, True Colors uh, founder George Taylor, he said that the, some of the people he had dealt with through his program um, said that exactly that that their goal was to get to tiptoe right up to the line of death and then come back, and that is scary. It's devastating for our community and our families. Yeah. Um, okay, so a little bit more of good news on in the opioid crisis. Let's let's talk about that. Yes. Um, Attorney General of the state, Josh Stein, released uh, a press statement on Monday and said that North Carolina is very close to receiving $750 million from the opioid settlement with the national companies that were, you know, saying that they're paying their dues for uh, contributing to the opioid crisis. And New Hanover County and the city of Wilmington are going to see some of that money. And so 
New Hanover County reached, or I reached out to New Hanover County, and they said they don't have a plan yet, but County Manager Chris Crew-Dre was on the working group for this settlement money. Uh, and I did ask uh, Judge Corpening, hey, when we get this money, what would you spend it on? Adolescent treatment would be a priority. I think that once the healing place is open, then we're going to have a pretty solid response for residential treatment for abstinence-based recovery. But some folks who opt for medical-assisted therapy also need residential treatment, and that's expensive. And, you know, if you've got insurance, there are places to go. If you don't have insurance, there aren't. Uh, It's very limited. So I think that would be another priority for me. We really don't need, you know, another corner store that doses methadone. We don't need that. Yeah, uh, without (laughs) getting too far into it, I can definitely say that we have seen some serious problems with some of the for-profit methadone clinics. Yes, I've heard that from counselors, too, as well. All right. Well, Rachel Keith, um, we'll have links to your reporting from December out. um, And I know you have more reporting coming out next week. So stay tuned for that. You can find that on WHQR.org. I know there's one more thing you want to leave us with. Yes. And the state has released what that money should go towards. There's a list of, I believe, 12 items. And again, like I mentioned earlier, second on that list is evidence-based addiction treatment. And this may include capital expenditures for, for facilities that offer evidence-based treatment for OUD, which is MAT. So we see the state launching into it's appropriate to use these funds to help support medically-assisted therapies in the community. Okay, so it will be very interesting to see how that plays out in the coming months and years as that funding makes its way into Hanover County. And we will follow it. Absolutely. All right, Rachel Keith, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Ben. Okay, well, we need to take a quick break, but when we come back, we will hear from Port City Daily's Alexandria Sands-Williams, who has been reporting on the county's approach to possibly reinstituting a mask mandate. You're listening to The Newsroom from WHQR Public Media. Please stay with us. Welcome back to the newsroom. I'm Ben Shockman. My guest now is Alexandria Sands-Williams, journalist and assistant editor at Port City Daily. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Nice to be here. All right. So I want to, before we get into the latest um, part of this mass mandate, I want to go back to August and just remind people what happened over the summer. Okay. So back in August, the uh, David Howard, the health director, put in place a order to have the mask mandate start as soon as possible. And he did that because in order for there to be the formal mask mandate, the Health and Human Services Board has to schedule a public hearing, which I believe takes 10 days. And they didn't want to wait for that. So they went this, did this little order in place. And then they had the hearing and they decided to keep the mask mandate. That lasted for a couple months. Numbers started dipping back down. By November, it seemed like at least some folks on the board were mm-hmm. uh, willing to get out of this mask mandate. Uh, for people who don't remember, what happened during that November sort of discussion? There was some talk about waiting until after the holidays and keeping the mask mandate in place. And that discussion went on for quite a while before uh, Juliet Olson Bozeman made a motion to just end it immediately and just kind of put a stop to that conversation. And a majority 
ruled that they would immediately um, end the mask mandate. And yeah, I remember at some point, you know, she said, maybe we can end it next week. And then she said, no, no, you know what? Just right now. Let's end yeah. It. <laughs> yep. OK. So, again, another couple months have passed. Uh, the Omicron variant has made its way through the region. Positivity rates, which is, you know, the, the number of COVID tests that come back positive have been through the roof. I forget mm-hmm. the actual, depending on when this airs, the positivity rate could be anywhere between, you know, 25 and 30 percent. It just keeps going up. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, it's up there. So at the beginning of the year, I think actually on New Year's Day, you published a piece about County Manager Chris Coudre getting involved in the discussion here. Yes. So on December 21st, the Health and Human Services Board met for their regular meeting and they started talking about cases rising and just said, hey, at our next meeting, January 18th, we are going to discuss having the mask mandate be put back in place. The day after that, the county manager sent an email to the commissioners, and he said, you know, I respect their decision to review this, but I want you guys to look at some alternatives. Don't just look at the mask mandate. Just for people who are you know, trying to follow this, these are the main players. We've got the Health and Human Services Board, right, which is appointed. Yes. We've got county commissioners, uh, and then you've got your county manager. And the county commissioners have told us in the past, I think Port City Daily and HQR, that the reason the commissioners didn't do it is that it would only apply to the unincorporated areas? Yeah, that's how it works. If the commissioners sign an ordinance or approve an ordinance for a mask mandate, it only applies to the unincorporated, and then all the cities and towns would need to pass their own mandate if they wanted that. The Health and Human Services Board is a much broader jurisdiction. They can have a mandate that applies to all over New Hanover County. Okay, so that at least, I mean, we've definitely heard people who felt like the commissioners were maybe dodging some political liability here, but at least from a policy point of view, you can cover more ground with the health board. Yes, that makes sense, yeah. So what were some of Kudre's suggestions that would be, you know, other than the mask mandate? First, he was saying things like education or encouraging people at businesses, like putting up signs. And then I think they had discussed possibly doing more testing and doing more notices about getting vaccinated. Gotcha. So... One of the one of the issues here was that in in his messages, Kudre said, "You know, I, I hope no one thinks that I'm overstepping here." Mm-hmm. Uh, but the health board wasn't initially aware that Kudre was getting involved in this. Um, yes, when I called the chair and the vice chair, neither of them knew before the article came out that he had directed the health department to start to look at alternatives, and he had also informed the county commissioners of that directive. Did you get a sense that people thought Kudre was overstepping, or is this just because? He's the county manager. He's the boss. I think it depends. The way he he's putting it is that he's just simply asking for them to look at alternatives, which makes sense. You want to have all the options on the table. He's also said he won't sign or won't consent to a health abatement. So it kind of makes you think, does he just not want a mask mandate? But that's really up to readers' judgment. That was one point in the article I did want to touch on is this. This is kind of you know inside baseball, a little complicated, but... When the first order came out, as you mentioned, uh, David Howard put in the abatement, which initially put in the mass mandate, and that gave the health board the time to do the 10-day notice so they could meet and vote. This time around, Kudre said he wouldn't consent to David Howard's abatement. Howard has that right under law, but correct me if I'm wrong, It's it seems like it's kind of just county policy that the county manager has to be on board in order to do this. If the county manager is not on board with the health abatement, then the health department who's underneath him wouldn't be able to put it in place. They wouldn't have his blessing and it just, it wouldn't work. All right. So flash forward during this uh, December meeting, they had decided to do sort of a subcommittee and look at the data, right? Yes. So this was interesting because we didn't hear about this uh, over here at HQR. Uh, We weren't aware of this until your article came out. 
Um, yeah. <laughs> initially, we were like sort of scrambling around trying to figure out where it was. Um, it <laughs> yeah. didn't initially look like it was public. How did that change? So when I called the chair and I asked her, "Did you know about these alternatives? And like, are you gonna, are you planning on reviewing them?" And she said, "I hadn't heard about this direction to look at alternatives, but we are meeting tomorrow, and I'm hoping we can discuss it then." So that's when I found out about this subcommittee meeting. And I reported on it and just said they're having this subcommittee meeting tomorrow. It's going to be private, so the public can attend. And if they do discuss alternatives, basically the concern there is that when they make the mask mandate decision, we're not really going to have the context or the background of what went into making that decision. And then they kind of, after that came out, they kind of shifted a little bit. Yeah, so after that came out, I guess I'm assuming the county manager saw the article because sometime between when the article came out and Tuesday morning, he asked the attorneys if that was legal for them to be having a private meeting. And the legal staff agreed that it wasn't and that they were supposed to have that in public because it is technically a public body. Okay, so the next step is the January 18th meeting, right? Yes. Uh, And at that point, will this be similar to the August meeting where they'll kind of look at positivity, hospital rates, stuff like that? Um, I would believe so, and then also probably these alternatives. Uh, That's the part that interests me about whether or not we will basically, I think a lot of people are just wanting to know, are we going to be back in masks or not? Yeah. So we have to wait. (laughs) It's hard to predict the future. Alexandria Sands-Williams, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. All right. Well, that's just about all the time we have for this edition of The Newsroom. I want to thank today's guests, Julia Olson-Bozeman, our own Rachel Keith, and Port City Daily's Alexandria Sands-Williams. Thanks as well to our technical team, Ken Campbell and Jonathan Fornell. If you missed any part of this show, you can find it at whqr.org or get the show as a podcast pretty much everywhere you can get podcasts. If you have thoughts or comments about today's show or ideas for a future show, email us at newsroom at whqr.org. I'm Ben Schockman. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us for the next edition of The Newsroom.